The bird's eye view of the disparities in the academy, I mean, they're now just enormous. There are now dozens of studies that document the political disparities. For example, recent studies that show that there are essentially no Republicans in many social science programs, and that's quite remarkable. Professor John Wright. Today, we look at why some academic fields have political disparities among professors that are somewhere between 40 and 100 to 1, liberals to conservatives. But other fields have no disparity at all. I'm Zach Rausch. This is Heterodox Out Loud. How do we explain the enormous political asymmetries that exist in higher education? Are they the result of discrimination, self-selection, Are liberals just simply smarter than conservatives? On today's show, we hear from John Wright, professor of criminology at the University of Cincinnati. He explains that the political disparities that exist in higher education can be understood if we dive into the research on the development of criminal gangs. Before we chat, let's listen to John's blog post that he wrote in 2019 on our website. It's called Political Disparities in the Academy. It's more than self-selection. Read by Richard Davies. American university professors are overwhelmingly politically liberal. Nowhere is this better demonstrated than by Mitchell Langbert's 2018 study of faculty political party preferences at elite liberal arts colleges. In short, Langbert found that Republicans are virtually absent in many academic disciplines, and are entirely absent in some universities. The dearth of non-liberal faculty is particularly acute in the humanities and the social sciences, where disciplines such as sociology and anthropology enjoy liberal-to-conservative ratios of between 40 and 100 to 1. Conservatives, it seems, are either no longer attracted to academic careers, as many liberals argue, or they are deterred from entering and discriminated against if found out, as many conservatives argue. But who's right, and are these explanations sufficient? The Limits of Self-Selection Let's consider two of the dominant explanations for these disparities. The first is referred to as the self-selection hypothesis. Self-selection is the process whereby individuals with similar characteristics, personality traits, behavioral orientations, and viewpoints choose to associate with similar others. We see self-selection in many realms of life, and research does suggest that liberals are more likely to attend graduate school overall and to select specific disciplines. By contrast, such large disparities can also be produced by discrimination or by a hostile work environment. The discrimination hypothesis posits that liberal faculty are more likely to engage in a broad range of behaviors that isolate and alienate conservative students and faculty, on the one hand, or that unfairly restrict the ability of conservatives to be hired or promoted, on the other. 
To date, studies have documented a willingness of some liberal faculty to discriminate against non-leftist faculty in hiring, promotion, publication, and in the receipt of grants. Moreover, conservative faculty report hiding their political orientation out of fear of reprisal. That said, it is the self-selection argument that is most often invoked by scholars to explain these disparities. So it is the self-selection argument that we need to focus on. Consider, for example, how statistically improbable it is for a large academic discipline to recruit, train, credential, hire, tenure, and promote only individuals from the left side of the political spectrum. For disciplines to reach liberal to conservative ratios of 40 to 100 to 1 and to maintain these disparities for decades is astonishing. Statistical probabilities aside, self-selection involves more than choice. Take selection into criminal gangs. I'm a criminologist after all. Some individuals are attracted to the criminal lifestyle, a lifestyle they see as consistent with their attitudes and behaviors and where they can find identity, rewards, and reputation. In short, their choice to belong to a gang is informed by the attractors embedded in the lifestyle. One of the key attractors to joining a criminal gang are relationships with others already in the gang. In this sense, self-selection reflects a response to attractors, enticements, and incentives that are typically embedded in relations with similar others. Once individuals elect to join an organization, they often alter their behaviors, attitudes, and values to better align with the ethos of the group. When individuals join gangs, their criminal behavior often increases in frequency and seriousness as they compete to demonstrate loyalty and symmetry with the gang. It's worth noting, too, that selection is a two-way street. Criminal gangs evaluate potential members for fit and conduct initiations to test that fit. Organizations and academic disciplines do the same. Far from being the product of autonomous choices made by rational actors, as it is often presented by various scholars, self-selection is a multifaceted and dynamic process involving choices by individuals and a group and a mutually perceived alignment of attitudes and beliefs. Hence, it is likely erroneous to frame self-selection and discrimination as competing hypotheses. These processes can easily complement one another in practice. My co-authors, Ryan Motts and Timothy Nixon, and I, sought a deeper understanding of these dynamics. Fortunately, we located a survey of faculty conducted by Henry Turner and Charles Spaulding, who from 1959 to 1964 collected information from a large sample of scholars across multiple disciplines, which provided new insights into how many fields may have become so ideologically sorted. Disciplinary Incentives and Faculty Political Conversion Turner and Spaulding asked faculty about the political party they belong to, and more importantly for our purposes, when they first joined that party and when, if ever, they changed their affiliation. These questions were key to our analyses as they allowed us to examine not only the prevalence of political membership, but also the timing of any changes that occurred. Consistent with prior research, we expected political party affiliation to be stable over time, 
and to see some degree of correspondence between party membership and selection into specific disciplines. Our findings confirmed our suspicions. About 75% of faculty belonged to the Democratic Party, with Democrat-to-Republican ratios very similar to those reported with more current data. Sociology, for example, had the largest ratio of approximately 15 to 1, while the geological sciences demonstrated parity. That said, we were surprised to also find that a significant number of faculty had changed their party affiliation, and we were even more surprised to find out that most changed their affiliation after becoming professors. Further analyses revealed that most faculty transitioned from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, but even here, academic context mattered. In fields already dominated by Democrats, faculty were more likely to join the Democratic Party. In fields where Democrats and Republicans were more equally represented, transition from one party to the other was lower. What do these data tell us? Keeping in mind the data are relatively old, they tell us that selection based on political party matters in some fields more than others, and that faculty seem to change their political party preference to mirror that of the discipline they work in. In disciplines dominated by Democrats, such as sociology and law, there may be strong incentives for individual faculty to align themselves with the political preferences of their field. Similar to our example with gang members, where new gang members align their values and behaviors to better conform to the group, the same processes may be at play with faculty. So yes, one of the reasons for the dramatic political disparities in the professorate is because liberals are more likely to enter certain academic fields. However, this conclusion is slightly misleading because it ignores the social dynamics in those fields that incentivize liberals to join them. This is worth considering in more detail, because attractors entice certain people but also repel others. Most people, for example, are appalled by the criminal lifestyle and would never, under normal conditions, choose to belong to a criminal gang. By extension, our findings suggest that certain academic disciplines have created environments where the attractors are so strong they appeal only to a very small cross-section of the general population, while simultaneously repelling a much larger group. Opening Space for Intellectual Diversity One question left unaddressed is why some academic fields are dominated by the political left but others are not. Economics and many of the hard sciences have traditionally enjoyed political disparities around three to one, with some fields in the hard sciences showing almost parity. These fields have also effectively avoided the hyper-politicization found in the humanities and the social sciences, perhaps by creating and retaining incentives that reward scholarly merit and research objectivity and by disincentivizing crass partisan politics and political activism. Politicization effectively crowds out these traditional scholarly priorities by altering incentive structures. What, then, can Heterodox Academy do to better facilitate intellectual diversity and academic tolerance within the academy? The approach of Heterodox Academy, or HXA, so far has been to recruit scholars already supportive of 
intellectual diversity, to give them a place where their intellectual similarities have a home. The other approach has been to serve as a hub where reasoned debate about issues of intellectual diversity can occur. Perhaps not surprisingly, HXA takes a scholarly approach to changing hearts and minds. As HXA matures, it may want to extend this strategy to include sponsoring research into the best methods by which intellectual diversity can be extended. It is striking how little data exists and how little empirical work is done on this issue. Second, Heterodox Academy could become a stronger voice for intellectual diversity and tolerance by attending national conferences and sponsoring panels across various fields, or by incentivizing others to do so. This bottom-up approach would likely reach more academics and could foster debate and insight more effectively. These approaches rest on the typical academic assumption that data, reason, and logic move scholars to change their minds. As our data show, scholars, at least in the past, are responsive to disciplinary incentives. However, given the remarkably high levels of effective political polarization that currently grips parts of the academy, such assumptions may not be valid. Effective polarization, as scholars call it, is a dressed-up term for political bigotry and even hatred, the emotional valence of which is more than sufficient to offset appeals to data and reason. While seemingly intractable, Heterodox Academy could take affirmative steps to more directly challenge political bigotry on campuses. Political bigotry within the Academy should be made as taboo as bigotry against any other group, especially when bigotry crosses the line into discrimination. As HXA continues its jaunt towards greater legitimacy within the Academy, it will eventually have to confront the incentives that draw such a small proportion of the American population into the Academy, convert many others into one political party, and, more importantly, repel legions of others. Higher education relies on social legitimacy, yet data now show that legitimacy is beginning to bend. A growing number of citizens are doubting the value of a college education, while many others view universities as a source of social instability. Heterodox Academy can play an important role in de-escalating the tribal impulses of the moral community of the professorate by using reason and data but also by carrying a big stick. Richard Davies reading John Wright's blog post, Political Disparities in the Academy. It's more than self-selection. Now, my discussion with John. John, thank you so much for coming on to Heterodox Out Loud. That's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. You're a criminologist. So first thing... Can you introduce yourself a little bit about your background, and then how did you as a criminologist come to be interested in viewpoint diversity and heterodoxy? I work at the University of Cincinnati in the School of Criminal Justice. My research has been a lot of criminological, criminal theory. I started working in an area called biosocial criminology, where we look at you know the nature-nurture issues involved in aggression and violence and all of those things. And more recently, uh, I've turned my attention to the important role of 
ideology and cognitive biasing and how these factors influence scholars, right, and how they approach a topic, how they understand issues, and how that also plays out in public policy, especially crime, right, uh, anti-crime efforts and so forth, where lives are literally at risk and ideology can kill people. What drove you to write this blog post and why do you care about, you kind of touched on it, but why do you care about this issue? So I, I mentioned that I have you know, done a fair amount of work in the nature nurture of criminal violence. And it's uh, an area in CRIM that, had, that was pretty much on life support uh, for a very long time. It was likened, I guess, to voodoo. And all of my colleagues had warned me to not pursue that line of research, right? That, that you'll be labeled and that all these horrible things will happen. And I was, you know, motivated for personal reasons. One of my daughters became sick with anorexia and I was amazed by the power of this. And, and as I worked, looked into the research on this, there was so much done on, you know, on, on the biology of it and evolutionary origins. I was really fascinated by this. I mean, if you think of all things, starving yourself, right? Shows the power sometimes of biology and the social triggers that are there. So I started working in this area and I, I can say that my friends were totally correct <laughs> in their assessment of, right, the consequences that would come along with it. And like other scholars who work, right, you send your work out and it comes back and every once in a while you get the reviews that are just dripping in blood, right? I mean, they're just over the top. But then it took a real turn and it was very personal. It was a substantive impact on my life, well beyond it. To me, this was just an area of scholarship, area of curiosity. And the reaction to it, I couldn't really understand, right? Why are people who are trained to be social scientists so dramatically opposed to the point of losing their minds sometimes? Well, after I got over being angry, I thought I need to approach this like a scholar, right? What is it they're reacting to? How are they seeing the world? And this turned me on to the, the air, how they've essentially been trained, right? And the institution uh, or the institutionalization of a certain type of training and viewpoints. And then I read John Haidt's book, Religion and Politics by Good People. And it really provided me the frame to understand, like, this is a worldview that this stuff conflicts with. So what kind of reactions were you getting for, for the kind of research you were doing? There was a concerted rumor campaign. You know, you go through the whole thing, right? Os being ostracized, being you know, attacked. I've had, you know, any numbers of, of encounters with people that, that were just, it was just over the top. And all of a sudden your reputation, <laughs> your reputation is doesn't reflect who you are in the slightest, but that has real consequences for you as a, as a human being and your ability to do work as a scholar. So kind of shifting over to your blog post, can you give us a bird's eye view in terms of what are the disparities politically in higher ed now? The bird's eye view of the disparities in the academy, I mean, they're now just enormous. There are now dozens of studies that document the political disparities. For example, recent studies that show that there are essentially no Republicans in many social science programs. And that's quite remarkable if you think about what that would take to get to that point. Sociology is estimated to be somewhere between 44 to 100 to 1. 
right? Liberal to conservative. You know, I estimated about 12,000 members of the American Sociological Association. No more than 600 would be moderate to conservative, and most of those (laughs) don't work in higher education. And it's not only that, more research is now showing that the administration, which most of the administration is drawn from ranks of faculty, those same disparities exist. And that also, when you look at the people who work at universities, who are part of the bureaucratic staff, who have face-to-face contact with students and so forth, very liberal. And it's important to note that that in the research also tells us that we're not just talking about run-of-the-mill liberal, right? Um we're talking about people that are more liberal than li- than liberals on in, ge- in the general population. Is there a reverse trend in any academic disciplines where you see the more conservatives to liberals? I think at best you might see parity. So, for example, the lowest disparity level is right now in the social sciences is in economics, and it's about three to one. As you move into uh, business, medicine engineering, those types of fields, you see one-to-one, close to one-to-one. In the blog post, I think you you really put together like a fascinating explanation for how these, how kind of the polarization of the fields continues to perpetuate itself. But one thing that I didn't quite uh, get, why did it start in the first place? That's an excellent question. And as academics, you know, we're, we're, we're narrow, narrowly trained in that one thing that we do, right? So we study the various things about crime. So we're kind of, we're, we're ignorant about the, the history of the institution of higher education, and we're sort of ignorant about the history of, so in our field. So I was curious about, okay, when did this start? How did this happen? And I found a, a, a wonderful book um, that I don't think, five people <laughs> called Advocacy and Objectivity by Mary O. Ferner. And Mary O. Ferner uh, was writing about what she called the crisis uh, of professionalism of American social science from, ni- from 1865 to 1905. She goes through sort of the, the development of the social sciences in, in higher education, the sort of the political fights And in here, she details wonderfully the tension that that occurred and was occurring between those who saw the social sciences as science, as disciplines where objectivity and the pursuit of truth were of the utmost importance, and those who were social reformers, who were very agenda-based, right, hyper-partisan in their politics, uh, and who saw science as something to be used in pursuit of those agendas. And this was at the start of sociology. This was at the start of of many of the social sciences. So this tension has been with us for, you know, literally uh, from the beginning. Part of the hyper-politization that we see today is clearly reflected in, in, you know, within universities if you look at sociology and sociology by any by all accounts uh is is often hyper partisan the political disparities are tremendous if you're a graduate student would you find the moral calling there attractive well if you're 
very liberal in, in your orientations, you're going to be welcome with this. This is a, a social agenda as much as it is, say, a research agenda. If you're libertarian, classical liberal, or a conservative, would you find that type of orientation welcoming? Would you be able to find people to work with if you challenged sort of the the sacred values of the field? You thought, well, I don't really think that it's social structure. I think it's, you know, personal responsibility or something like that. Would, would those arguments be given credence and would they resonate? And what would be the damage to you if they if they were so attractors and then uh, things that repel people? I thought your connection to criminal gangs to help explain attractors and what gets is incredibly interesting. And I was wondering if there's an analogous explanation for how do you help break them down? It is kind of funny to see a parallel between criminal gangs and university faculty, but because faculty sometimes act that way as well. But there are parallels here in the sense that, you know, gangs have certain rules. They recruit certain types of people. Uh, if you violate the rules, you're really punished. They have in, in group out, strong in group out group orientations. It's the essence of tribalism. And these are just echoed in other forms and they can be echoed in other forms in faculty settings. Can you tell me one, uh, a personal story, uh, related to one of the attacks that you've experienced around, uh, your research and your views? If I were to summarize it, there's a tremendous toll to be paid personally for working in certain areas or holding certain views, or if you're, you know, not within the political margins of a, of a discipline, right? There are people who will go after you and they will go after you with everything they have. And I've experienced that multiple times. And, and I think the goal is for them not to not only score points, but it's to silence you. It's to marginalize you. And, you know, that has been something I have struggled with uh, for a very long time. Um, academia can be a very hostile place and a very petty place. And this is really the toxic role of, of politics. It's the tox toxicity of advocacy that sometimes comes into play. What can be done? How do we reduce the political homogenization that we've seen in particular disciplines? First of all, I think, you know, heterodox is the, the way to go, right? I'm often asked, you know, well, do you want affirmative action for conservatives or libertarians? And the answer is always no. Uh, what I would like to see is the depolitization academia. If you care about something, if you love something, don't make it political because politics ruins everything. We've seen now over the last, especially last five years, right? the extremely negative consequences for academic freedom, freedom of speech, the ability for scholars of all sorts to do their job without sanction. Much of this has been driven by the hyper-partisanship that, that is within the academy. So I think it's about realigning the incentives in the academy to pursue truth, to pursue open inquiry, to pursue free speech and to think about the types of threats against those things. You can pursue any line of research you want to, but there's a line where, you know, 
attacking others, isolating others, especially based on what you perceive their political views. This is not professional conduct. So there's going to have to be some internal regulation inside the university, some, some professionalism. And some of these ideas we just need to fight over. If you had to summarize your argument and what you've been saying as an elevator pitch, what would you say? We can do better with this, right? It is, the evidence is pretty clear that intellectual diversity matters. It matters because it, it, it aligns uh, the mission with truth-seeking. It matters because we learn from each other. It gets us out of the bubbles that we create. And ultimately, I think it humanizes people and it makes us better as empathetic, reasonable scholars. We, as academics, right, have to learn to take criticism and to think about what's in the long-term best interest of our institutions and not always what's in, in the interest of our careers. If we care about the pursuit of truth and we care about the institution of higher education and learning, then let's sit down and talk together. Let's put that on the table. Let's find the commonalities that we have so that we can do our jobs better, break down these political ideological fences and work collaboratively. We should welcome people into the academy who are interested in pursuing research and in teaching, independent of what political views they may have. John Bright on Heterodox Out Loud. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and listen to more thought-provoking takes from our blog authors. Thanks to Davies Content for producing this show, to Kara Boyer on our communications team, and as always, thank you for listening. I'm Zach Rausch. Until next time. <laughs>